0: coming down close today. Last week we talked about, well, we had a real conversation about money. The fact that money really is a necessary part of life and it penetrates every aspect of our lives, even if we work very hard to not let it. It's part of life. This week I want to talk to you about why we act the way we do about money and what we should be striving for for those of you who weren't here I'm using a book that I have been reading rereading called The Soul of Money written by Lynn Twist and it's not in any way a book meant to be a church stewardship book but when I first read it a couple of years ago it really stuck to with me that it's real important for us to have a true connection with why we think and do with our money. So it is written by a woman of faith, and uh, it has some wonderful things in it that I want to share with you. There's a beautiful story in the book, and I don't remember if I have shared it with you before, but it's worth sharing again if I didn't, or if I did. Uh, Lynn was uh, a woman who works worldwide for hunger initiatives, and she was going to be in New Delhi, and for years she had admired and followed Mother Teresa, and she found out this particular day that she was going to get to meet with Mother Teresa that afternoon. Well, she was so excited. She was supposed to meet with World Bank officials, and she canceled her meeting, and she, did, she spent all day getting ready to see Mother Teresa. And so she traveled the pilgrimage, the 45-minute drive she had to make uh, to get to the orphanage where Mother Teresa worked. And as she was walking up the stairs, there was a pile of newspapers on the steps, and she realized that wrapped in that pile of newspaper was a baby. And she picked that baby up, and she carried it into the orphanage, and she discovered this huge room full of baby beds, with two or more babies in every bed. And the women in the room did not seem at all surprised when she came carrying this baby, and they just took the baby from her, and she said, I'm supposed to see Mother Teresa today. And they said, well, she's been called into town for a few moments. If you would like to just jump in and help, we'll get you when she returns. And so she began... uh, greeting the children, and she began bathing these children, some that are uh, maimed in different ways, some that are as healthy as can be. And she's watching these children as she begins to remember that something Mother Teresa had said was that if you want to know me, know my work. And she said, I realized I was meeting Mother Teresa in the work that I was doing. And a few moments later, someone came and tapped her on the shoulder and said, Mother Teresa has returned, and we'll see you now. And so she got up, and she walked down the long hallway. She could hear the nun singing at the even song. And she said, I saw her, and the moment I saw her, I was frozen. She said, Mother Teresa held out her hands, and I kissed them. And then I knelt at her feet, and she insisted that I get up and we sat down and we began to talk. And we were talking about the work that she does when all of a sudden, this two people come barreling down the hall. She said, you could smell them before they got there. They had so much perfume on and they were covered in jewels and, and they were just large people that came barreling down, the hallway, and they took a camera, and they shoved it in my hand, and they said, we need a picture with Mother Teresa, and she said, I was just kind of taken aback, and they just lifted her up, and they stood stood her between them, and they took her picture, and and even at one point in time, the woman wanted her head lifted, and you know, Mother Teresa was stumped over, and She grabbed her chin and yanked it up, and I thought that had to have been painful, but I just wanted them gone, so I took the pictures. And as fast as I took the pictures, they took the camera and they were off. And immediately, immediately Mother Teresa sat back down and went right back into the conversation with Lynn. But Lynn said, I could hardly hear anything she was saying. I was so angry. When she returned back home from that trip, she wrote Mother Teresa a letter and explained her anger and her rage. And she explained how shocked that she was to recognize her own prejudice and lack of compassion for these two people. When Mother Teresa replied, she made this statement. The vicious cycle of poverty has been clearly articulated and is widely known. What is less obvious and goes almost completely unacknowledged is the vicious cycle of wealth. Man, I've thought about that phrase so much since I read it. We live in a world where really everyone have problems, don't we? We live in a world where there seems to be poor and wealthy and there doesn't seem to be in between. And I realize that there really are, but we all feel like we're the other, don't we? The wealthy often feel like they need to be wealthier They need to catch up to the other person who has more than they do. And the poor just need to be fed. Either way, everyone comes with their own problems no matter where we fit in the the spectrum. We live in a world which for some reason or another has become to believe this great lie that there's not enough to go around. We live in a world of abundance. Really, we do. They say that cattle are fed enough to prepare them for slaughter to feed all the hungry children in the world. Farmers are paid not to plant crops because they don't want an overabundance in the marketplace. This is a world of abundance, but we seem to only be able to focus on what we don't have, what we need, what we're after. Think about it. How often do you say in a day, I don't have, or I didn't get enough of. I didn't get enough sleep. I don't have enough time. We don't get enough exercise. We're not thin enough. We're not smart enough. We're not successful enough and on and on. Before we even have a chance for our feet to hit the floor, we're behind in the day. We have more people than we can count, taking things to help them sleep at night, to help them turn off their minds so they can sleep, because their minds are going through all the things they didn't get done or they didn't get that day. We even take our machines to bed with us. We can't disconnect and I'm as guilty as anyone. The mantra of not enough has become our default setting. We even do it in church, we don't have enough people, we don't have enough money, we can't help everyone. How do we keep going? How long are we gonna be able to survive? How can we move forward when we feel so behind? There are, according to Lynn Twist, there are three myths about scarcity that we all hold on to. The first is that there's not enough. We somehow have come to believe that there's not enough for everyone. So we must compete to make sure we're not the one left out. We line up to buy telephones the day they go on the market. You know, the funny saying about when you see a bear in the woods, you don't have to outrun the bear. You only have to outrun one of the people you're with. (laughs) It's kind of the same way, isn't it? You just need to beat out the other person so you're not left without. Or maybe it's more like musical chairs. We're trying not to be the person left standing. The problem is, in most things, there is enough for everyone if we would let there be. The fear that there's not enough leads us to buy more than we need, and we end up letting things go to waste or storing up things so that others don't have. Think about the food we throw away because it goes bad. The next myth is that more is better. More is better is a chase with no end and a race with no winners. It's addictive, it's never-ending, and it's becoming more and more problematic in our world. We see it in those who make millions a year and they continue to push and fight for more. Enough is never enough. Our homes are never big enough, our banks' accounts are never full enough, and for some our calendars are never full enough. The third myth is that there's, this is just the way it is, and we have to live with it. We have to accept it. Buckminster Fuller, who was an architect and a futurist, and he believed that we needed to move from <clears throat> a you-or-me world where either you make it or I make it, And we need to fight and compete to see who makes it to a you and I world in which we all have enough water, we all have enough food, we all have enough land, we all have enough housing, we all have enough of the fundamental things of life to live productively. And that may sound simple or maybe controversial, but I don't think he meant it for the world to control it. I think he meant for us to change our attitude, our way of thinking. He believed that it would take 50 years for enough changes to be made in the world to see a shift. He died in the early 80s and I'm kind of sure that none of those shifts have happened. As a matter of fact, I think we have gone the other direction, and we've become a little more comfortable with the you or me mode. We live in a world of plenty of food to go around, and yet 41,000 people, mostly children, die a day of hunger. You may wonder what this has to do with church, and even more importantly, what does it have to do with stewardship? And I think for me, part of what I'm getting at comes in the message of the one leper who stops and remembers to thank Jesus. How often do we worry so much about getting or about what we haven't got that we forget to stop and be thankful for what we do have? The millennials have a saying that I love. It's a first world problem. People in countries who hardly have anything don't worry about things like we do. A lot of you have probably heard our dilemma of having this big fancy built-in refrigerator that was in our house when we moved in, and it is trying to die. And it works for a day or two, and then it doesn't work for three or four, and then it works for a day or two, and it doesn't work for three or four. and So we lost a lot of food, And finally I said, we have got to go buy a refrigerator. And I have complained and complained about it. And my complaint is that we're living out of a refrigerator in our garage. So every time I want something, I have to go to the garage to get it. I told Roy this weekend, that's it. We're buying a new refrigerator. We're not waiting any longer. And as I was writing this sermon, I thought to myself, there are people who walk miles to get water. And I'm upset that I have to go to the garage to get ice. First world problem. Another thing I would say is that we need to recognize that there are people in all stages of lives, the haves and the have-nots, but no one has it made. No one. No one goes through life unscarred or easy We're called as a church to extend our hands to those that are hurting. Like Mother Teresa, who recognized what that couple needed that day. It wasn't money. It wasn't a handout. What they needed was a picture. A simple picture. And I also think it's really important for us as the church to try to change the mindset of me or you to me and you. Isn't that what church should be? A ministry to all, a ministry to each of you, but also a ministry to those in our world who need love. And part of our mission is to find out how we can love all people where they are today. I realize these aren't normal stewardship. Ship sermons and I'm not asking you to take so many dollars and give it to the church. I'm asking you to think about money and I'm asking you to think about how your soul is affected by money. Am I going to buy a refrigerator for my house? Yes I am. Yes I am. But I'm going to be careful and cautious And I'm not going to go overboard. And while I'm at it, I might just find a way to be thankful that I can buy a refrigerator. And I might find a way to help someone else along the way. May we be thankful for what we have. And may we be willing to give in whatever way we can. To make this a you and I world instead of a you or I. Amen and amen. Our hymn of response.